and she proceeds to whip off her wig to reveal <laughs> that she is completely bald. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. I'm Nathan. It's Peter here. We're back again and on our Sondheim series. Yeah, Just- we're... we're- Working our way through some of the great Sondheim musicals. The, uh, so uh, 1973 is where we land today in what will be Sondheim's third consecutive win, Tony win for uh, music and lyrics. Three Tony Awards in three years. At the time, that was a record. He won for Company, he won for Follies, and he will win again in 1973 for A Little Night Music. So early 70s, Sondheim is a busy boy, uh, racking up some of his uh, what, what we, the most enduring uh, material. And A Little Night Music, arguably his, well, not arguably, uh, definitively, his most commercially successful show. You want to talk a little bit about that, Peter? Yeah, yeah. Um, His eighth Broadway musical, his second collaboration with Harold Prince, Mm -hmm. the most critically well-received of any of his, uh, even Clive Barnes liked it in the New York Times. People were, uh, critics were charmed by it, audiences were charmed by it. Six Tony Awards, uh, Best Musicals, Book, Score, Actress, Glynis Johns, Featured Actress, Patricia Elliott, Costume Design, Actor, Actress, etc. It, it, it cleaned up at the Tonys. Um, and made a lot of money, too, I think. Is most that, financially yeah. successful, yeah. yeah. So second collaboration with Hal Prince. First collaboration for Sondheim with the British author, a British-American author, Hugh Wheeler. Uh, Wheeler was a writer of mystery novels under a number of pseudonyms. And Wheeler had collaborated with Bernstein on Candide. He wrote the libretto for Candide, the the musical version of the Voltaire piece. And later collaborated again with Sondheim uh, for the book of Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. So, and also just uh, coincidentally for all our musical theater nerds out there like us, was uh, credited with writing large parts of the screenplay for Cabaret. Right. So... uh, Knew what he uh, was doing, yeah. Knew what he was doing, and uh, an interesting book, so... Yeah, Open. Sondheim. Sondheim calls the book to a little night music one of his favorites. He, uh, he, I don't think he loved it when he first read it. It was a he was he wanted to do something much more innovative. They wanted to sort of do three different possible endings. So Act One would have been one version of an ending. Act Two would have been a different ending, and Act Three would have been a third. Kind of, basically, I think the idea was Madame Armfelt was up there shuffling these characters and setting up three. Di- he kind of wanted to do something that was much more innovative in terms of form. And Hal Prince and Hugh Wheeler said, no, that's not, nobody's, nobody cares about that. Let's just tell a very, you know, let's tell a straightforward story. Hal Prince wanted something commercially successful because he'd lost a ton of money on Follies and he needed a hit. Uh, so when, when Hugh Wheeler first turned in the book, Sondheim said, eh, it's kind of boring, but I can get into the music, so whatever. And he says, you know, as he's aged, he said, you know, I've gone to see, you know, performance after performance of a little night music. Every time a friend's daughter plays Frederica, you know, like I've sat through high school productions of it, girls' school productions, community theater, professional productions. And he says, I am always, I always go into it thinking it's going to be like homework. And I'm always astounded by how good this book is. The characters are so well drawn. The dialogue is really, uh, holds up really well. Um, so he, he's, his kind of final analysis is Hugh Wheeler's book to a little night music is one of his favorites. Yeah. 
it works well. It um, ran for 601 performances in its original uh, Broadway uh, cast uh, uh, placement, and then came back in 2009 and uh, with first Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury, and then later Elaine Stritch and uh, Bernadette Peters. And that production, uh, both uh, directed by Trevor Nunn, based on a London production, ran, uh, ran 425 performances. So that's over a thousand on Broadway for Little Night Music, putting it up in the panel P of longevity, long-running Broadway yep. shows, which is really hard to do. So uh, a commercial so success. Kudos, yeah. So also, kudos. it's his. It's probably his. I mean, it's, I think it's the only song Sondheim's ever written that won a Grammy for best song. I mean, Send of the Clowns is probably his best known song, yeah. uh, probably recorded by more, you know, everybody for a little while there in the 70s and 80s was, I remember seeing music boxes with Send in the, I mean, like it was everywhere. <laughs> that song has become a standard um, in, a, in a sort of at a commercial level that even some of his better known Broadway stuff has not reached that, that, that a lot of people know Send in the Clowns. Yeah, it, it, it's a great tune and we can talk a bit about it. Well, why don't we talk a bit about it just now? Because it's kind of, I think most everybody's association with it, we can put it in context a little bit later, but it was, a, it was written explicitly for Glynis Johns, who uh, was their first choice to play uh, Desiree, but she had a, kind of a breathy voice and unable to sustain a long phrase. And that's why he wrote it. And this is, you know, I think another way to talk about Sondheim Sondheim's ability to write for particular artists, like he wrote for Merman, he wrote for Elaine Stritch, and he wrote for Glynis Johns, but it's why it's, isn't it rich, breath, breath, aren't we a pair, breath, breath, etc. Isn't it rich, are we a pair, me? At last on the ground, you in midair, send in the clouds. Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing around, one who and move where are the clouds send in the clouds just when I stopped opening doors finally knowing the one that I wanted was yours making my entrance again with my usual flame Sure of my lines No one is there Don't you love the farce My fault I fear I thought that you'd want what I want Sorry, my dear But where are the clouds? Quick, send in the clouds 
don't bother on confidence right so like yeah. you can't you can't hold out rich you can't hold out pair it requires an actor who can th kind of throw away on isn't it rich uh and then as you say right and have to take a nice deep breath before your next phrase short little expressive phrase which is part of i think why the song works so well i mean actually yes. dramatically that's a really interest it's a it's a much more conversational song there's a tentative quality to it it doesn't feel like a performance piece it feels like uh like a person speaking and the the illusion is uh, send in the clowns to a dramatic situation that isn't working well or the play's getting boring. So the playwright or the players send in the clowns to give it some comedy relief, to lighten it up, to uh, make it a bit less heavy, uh, reduce the gravitas, all that sort of thing. And uh, the song sort of does that, but it kind of also has a winsome quality to it. Uh, a plaintiveness, if you like. Yeah, it's a tr it's a tricky song to make work. I think for that reason, mm -hmm. I mean, partly because it's become such a, um, I mean, a standard. I would say almost even a little mawkish. I think. I mean, th there's 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 a quality to send in the clowns now where it's almost a cliche, and I think it's hard it's hard to get at that winsfulness, that that sort of uh, wistful quality, without coming across as. Um, Oh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Sending the clowns can be a little stagey if it's not yeah. done carefully, uh, because it is a it is a a woman reflecting very bitterly, but as you say, with a with a slight with a sense of regret on having missed her opportunity. Right, I threw something away yeah. in my youth. I try. I made a bid to get it back and realized our timing was completely off. So it's it is at one level, it's a woman trying to piece together whatever shards of dignity she can put back together, having made an offer for a man who rejected her. As you say, there's a, there's a kind of, there's, there's a longing and a regret there. So there's a lot of subtext for an actor to play, but it, it, it's also, that song has become such a, um, as, yeah, kind of a cliche. So it's hard to, say cliche, yeah. it's hard to figure out. I mean, you know, I, I think a good actor can, can Judy Dench famously, uh, you know, kind of, I think actually Catherine Gita Jones made some interesting choices. I, I thought her per performance of it was a little, uh, there wasn't a lot of subtlety to it. It was, it was pretty, <laughs> she was telegraphing to you everything she thought you needed to know. Um, it's a hard song to breathe new life into uh, yeah. because the subtext has become the text in so many ways. It's a song about regret. When Glennis John sang it for the first time, I imagine it was a much more interesting song, right? Here's a beautiful ballad and you become aware that the subtext of this is a woman who actually is dealing with quite a bit of regret, but she's laughing it off, right? She, you know, send to the clowns. This is, oh, what, what a funny little thing. Ha 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 Actually, my heart is breaking. And now we know it as a song about a broken heart. So yes. figuring out how to find a different subtext than the very obvious subtext that's there, I think is a little tricky. Um, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't have the, the capacity to surprise us, I suppose, in the same way that it did. And really the, the song has the big themes of the, of, of, of the show uh, embedded in it, which are love and sex and time. Yeah. It was based on, the, the book is based on a 1955 film by Ingmar Bergman uh, called Smiles of a Summer Night. And the great anecdote is that Bergman came to see the show in its first run and sent uh, Stephen Sondheim a note saying, quote, I enjoyed the evening very much. Your piece has nothing to do with my movie. It merely has the same story. And then the kicker, after all, we all eat from the same cake. Mm 
So, <laughs> his, uh, yeah. so uh, a, a take on uh, Smiles of a Summer Night, um, but not really uh, putting that movie to music, yeah. just using the story and right. doing his own thing. Yeah. And as I've been thinking about Little Night Music, in some ways, it's the, if you put together the arc that we've been kind of exploring with, starting with Gypsy, starting with Gypsy, uh, leaving West Side Story aside for a moment, and strong female character, writing for Merman, writing for Glynis Johns, you layer on top of that the sex comedy of funny thing happens on the way to the forum, you layer onto that the complex plot in Anyone Can Whistle, and then probably most acutely, the couples in Follies and a cynical view on marriage and company. And it all kind of blossoms here in Mm -hmm. Little Night Music. Yeah, it is. I mean, very deliberately, I suppose, a Little Night Music is a kind of confectioner's cake. You know, it's it's designed to be, I, I think Hal Prince's famous term is, you know, it's it's whipped cream with knives. And Sondheim said, <laughs> I was I was particularly interested in the knives. Hal Prince was particularly interested in the cream. So <laughs> I, my sense is there, there was a little bit of tension maybe at work in this thing. Prince wanted to make a hit. He wanted something that was commercially viable. Uh, Sondheim, as, to, to your point, wants to kind of continue. He says, I'm interested in, in material about ambivalence. I'm interested in ambivalence. I'm interested in, in darker material. Um, so we might say that that tension, right? Like kind of, in some ways that unresolved tension between light confectioner, sex comedy, vehicle for a diva. I mean, there's nothing not entertaining about a little night music. It is quintessentially entertaining. But, you know, then Sondheim's, you know, kind of continuing this project of exploring the darker nature of the human heart, kind of pushing at what a, what a musical comedy can do or be, the kinds of questions it can ask. So if you're a fan of a little night music, and I'm, I consider myself, a, I don't love a little night music, but I, I think it's a, it's a strong show. I think what works about it is it, it is in some ways a, a great marriage of viable, commercially successful, you know, entertaining, beautiful music, very clever music with a, with a little bit of an edge, not quite as intense of an edge as Company or Follies or Sweeney Todd, certainly some of, some of the later material will have much more of an edge. Uh, Little Night Music is, is uh, it's complicated, but in, in a sort of farcical way, in a, in a very entertaining way, which I said either is why the show works or why, you know, I suppose why it can be a tricky show to stage uh, because there is so much lightness, even with Send of the Clowns, a little bit of, uh, of cliche in this material. Um, so trying to find ways to bring out some of the darker material uh, can be a, a challenge, I suppose, depending on... And musically, it's amongst his most interesting. Number one, because he's really wanting to write in three-quarter time for the most part, or danceable music, if you like. He's very influenced by Ravel uh, and by Rachmaninoff in, in the score. So it's got a, uh, got a very sort of classical feel to it. And it's no surprise then that, it, that opera companies yeah. have often produced Little Night Music because it calls for some big voices and more classical lines in its, uh, in its mm-hmm. scope. And it has a, a sort of interesting Greek chorus uh, quintet of singers who begin the show. Uh, whenever I've seen it, it's always kind of uh, arresting that uh, five characters in period costume, supposed to be happening around 1900, come on the stage and they sing the overture. 
Um, and it's a brilliant little, little yeah. piece. Yeah, the best, the best music in the music. piece is, I think, Gone to the Pink Quintet. They have some of the most interesting music. But yeah, it kind of does lay out for you some of the major themes you're going to see playing out over the night, right? These are, uh, I think it's three women and two men. Uh, they're they're singing this sort of light. So they're they're singing a kind of a dance. There's a kind of yeah. courtship. They're flirting. Uh, you, you get they're, they're presenting. I'm imagining kind of a lot of kind of various tableaus. Uh, and later on, that's that kind of becomes their function in some ways to sort of. Uh, keep reminding us that this show is about the dance of men and women. We might, I mean, it's a, in that level, it's, you know, it, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a lot about flirtation. It's a lot about, it's a sex comedy. Um, so a lot, of, it's about remembering. So a, a lot of, a lot of what A Little Night Music is about, I think, is sort of the, the, the different moments in a person's life. Uh, there's three generations that kind of the, the show traces, right? The very young, the kind of the middle-aged, and then the elderly, and how each of those three generations think about love, think about coupling, think about choices, we might say, especially the women in the piece. I mean, in some ways, like the most interesting kind of generational arc, I think, in A Little Light Music is that it's really three generations of women. Uh, I mean, literally in one family, right? You've got Frederica, who's the youngest character. Often she begins the thing. In fact, Sondheim's original conception of the piece was he wanted the whole story to be told through Frederica's eyes. They kind of dropped that conceit. Um, but she's 14. Uh, she kind of begins the thing, right? She's um, this this young girl who's just starting to come to maturity. She's got a mother who's mostly absent. That's Desiree Armfelt, kind of the lead uh, the lead character, um, a middle aged actress who has achieved quite a bit of success. has a has a daughter, has never married. Uh, so Frederica, we're meant to understand, I think, was born out of wedlock. Uh, and Desiree has parked her daughter with her own mother, the uh, Madame Armfelt, who's sort of a she's seventy four. She's a former courtesan. Famously played by Hermione Gingold. I have I have a lot I want to say about <laughs> Hermione <laughs> Gingold. We'll bracket that. Um, so three generations of women in one family: Madame Armfelt, Desiree Armfelt, and Frederica Armfelt. 
a uh, young girl, a middle-aged woman, and an older woman, all of them thinking, kind of interacting with other people in their lives, thinking about what it's going to mean to be a woman in, you know, turn of the century, 1900 Sweden. And then there's these other characters, right? You've got Anne, who's a young girl, 18-year-old, 19-year-old young woman who's just married a much older man. Uh, for, oh, what's his name? Frederick Eng Engelmann. Eng Enger Egerman? Egerman. Uh, Frederick is a, is, a, is a lawyer. He's, he's what, late 40s, I think, has married a much younger girl. They've been married for a year. The marriage has never been consummated because Anne is very shy and Frederick won't push her. Frederick is a former lover of, uh, of Desiree Armfelt, the, uh, the actress. And we're meant to understand is probably, um, not probably, is certainly Frederica's father. Although um, that, that's, a, that's a little, that's a minor plot point. So he rekindles his romance with Desiree and finds out about it actually finds out about it through the wife of the other man with whom Desiree is having an affair. This is where the plot starts to get a little complicated. And really, Absolutely. I mean, the details, I guess we probably said don't this really matter. Everybody. They don't Carl matter all Mangus, that much. Yeah. yeah, Carl Mangus, who's just kind of a, he's a soldier. He's kind of a buffoon. Um, his wife is, is aware that her husband is having an affair with this actress. She's in love with him, but she hates him. She's, she's, a, she's a, an interesting, but a tricky character. Um, she's best friends with Anne. So basically the whole first act is kind of laying out all of these various kind of plot complications. The whole whole first act ends when a letter arrives and everybody is invited to Madame Armfelt's chateau in the country for a weekend, weekend in the country. In the country. A great, it's a great kind of act one finale <clears throat> number. Um, and so then the second act is then basically like it's one night, right? Like it's right. it's it's uh, this is Sweden, it's midsummer, so the sun never quite sets. It's this weird liminal time where it's perpetual twilight. You know, I think that tells us a lot about the mood of this thing. Uh, Madame, Madame Armfelt famously says to Frederica, right, the summer night smiles three times. She says, well, why does it smile, grandmother? And Madame Armfelt, at the follies of human beings, my dear, the first smile smiles at the young who know nothing. The second smile at the fools who know too little like Desiree. And the third at the old who know too much like me. So there you've got the three, right, the kind of the three moments in a woman's life, the three moments in a person's life, uh, the young who don't know anything, the middle-aged, and then the elderly um, and the second act is basically how do you know how do we how do we set this thing right? Madame Armfelt kind of becomes the the fates character, if you like, right? She's kind of the one who's uh, pulling the strings metaphorically mostly to make sure that the right people end up with the right with the right people. And by the end of the thing, they all do. Uh, marriages end, other marriages are resolidified. Desiree gets Frederick, and they go off into the sunset, I suppose. To Live happily ever after. Um, live happily ever after, or maybe not, because it's a Sondheim show, and he's not really interested in happily ever after. But at least, at least for the moment, things are righted in the world, um, and everybody goes to bed happy. And it it opened on February fifteenth, uh, and we're recording this on February fourteenth. Oh well, you know, happy almost that. anniversary, little night music. What I, I know, yeah. in nineteen seventy three. So it's fifty years old uh, tomorrow. Wow. Um, so a little night music 20... itself is in its uh, its second smile, if you it like. It knows nothing. It knows, knows too little. Knows too little. It's a it's a fool who knows too little. And in another yeah. twenty or thirty years ago, it will have aged to become the old who knows too much. And we'll see too what much. that uh, what that yeah. looks like. But those like. are three interesting phases of life: uh, knowing nothing, knowing too little, and knowing too much. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think from both your and my uh, work in pastoral ministry, certainly, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that the young who really know nothing tend to think they know everything. Yeah. I mean, I certainly did when I was young. The folks 
in in middle age are often uh, as I was having a sense that I really knew a lot, but I really didn't know as much as I thought I did. Mm-hmm. And then folks look to elders as being the ones who have the wisdom, but often they just, those of us who are old, know too much and there's not a way to focus it. So it's kind of an, my point is it's kind of unfair at all three stages of life, either not knowing anything or knowing too little or knowing too much. If those are the three phases, then in in each phase, we sort of delude ourselves thinking we're probably either smarter or wiser than maybe we really are. Yeah. Um, yeah. You see it a lot. And... I mean, A Little Night Music is, in. If, I mean, if there's any sort of thing that unites all of these characters, maybe with the exception of Madame Armfelt, who knows too much. But everybody else is to a certain degree self-deluded, right? Yes. Like the young, the young who know nothing, right? That's that's Anne. She's 18. She's married a much older man. Uh, the marriage is unconsummated. You get the sense that she feels affectionately towards him, but she's not happy in this marriage, although she's convincing herself that she is. You've got Frederica, the young, the young girl who asks too many provocative questions. And and actually, you know, often Frederica's song gets cut, you know, the glamorous life is kind of, actually, I think it's one of the most interesting songs in the piece. Sondheim rewrote it for the film. Um, and it's a great, it's a great piece about, um, you know, uh, my, my mother is not, not ordinary, like ordinary mothers are. She's, a, she's an actress in the play. So the, at, the, at the level of text, right, Frederica is very excited by the fact that her mother is different from everybody else. But also underneath is the sense of longing for a, a mother who is present in her life. Ordinary mothers lead ordinary lives Mop the floors and chop the parsley Mend the clothes and tend the children Ordinary mothers like ordinary wives Make the beds and bake the pies And wither on the fire Not mine Dying by inches Every night, what a glamorous life Pulled on by winches To recite what a glamorous life Ordinary mothers never get the flowers And ordinary mothers never know the joys But ordinary mothers couldn't Cough for hours maintaining their poise Sandwiches only, but she eats what she wants when she wants. Sometimes it's lonely, but she meets many handsome galas. Ordinary mothers don't live out of cases, but ordinary mothers don't go different places, which ordinary mothers can't do. Being mothers all day, finds a way in a place. She's realer than them. What if her brooch is only glass and her costumes unravel? What if her coach is second class? She at least gets to travel. And sometime this summer, meaning soon she'll be traveling to me. Sometime this summer, maybe June, I'm the new place she'll see. Ordinary daughters may think 
life is better with ordinary mothers near them when they choose but ordinary daughters seldom get a letter enclosing reviews gay and resilient with applause what a glamorous life speeches are brilliant if they're shores what a glamorous life ordinary mothers needn't need committees but ordinary mothers don't get keys to cities no ordinary mothers merely see their children all year which is lovely i hear but it does interfere with the glamorous i am the princess guided by dragons snorting and grumbling and rumbling in wagons she's in her kingdom wearing disguises living a life that is full of surprises and sometime this summer she'll come galloping over the green sometime this summer to the rescue my mother the queen ordinary mothers thrive on being private but ordinary mothers somehow can survive it and ordinary mothers never just standing still with the kettles to fill while they're missing the thrill of the glamorous life she knows nothing she's entranced by a glamorous life and also there's a kind of um, there's a longing for something different. And I, in some ways, I think Frederica's counterpart then is Petra, the maid, who at the end of the piece sings the other kind of great, what, the great song of the young, we might say, the Miller son, which I, I think we'll yes. get to. So those are sort of our, those are our young. Oh, and, and Henrik, I suppose, would also would count in that, right? The young seminary student. He's the son of Frederick Egerman. Uh, he plays the cello all the time because he walks around feeling depressed and and Anne says, can't you play something a little less gloomy? And he says, it's not gloomy, it's profound, which <laughs> I want engraved on my tombstone. I, I have some strong identification identification with Frederick Nickerman. Um, but these young, you know, like they're all they're all clueless, right? Like they have no right. idea what they're doing. And then you've got the fools, the middle age. In some ways, like that's the heart of the show, right? Middle age. Yes. Uh, you know, not insignificantly sometimes in his 40s as he's riding this, I think so is Hal Prince. Uh, I don't know how old Hugh Wheeler is, but you know, this is this is a this is a show about middle age in a lot of ways, right? Desiree is the kind of the main, the main character, Glennis Johns, Egerman, to a certain degree, Charlotte is approaching middle age, although she's still she's a bridge figure. I don't know what to do with Carl Magnus. That I, I he's incidental as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But Eger, but Egerman and 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 Desiree are middle-aged characters. They're in their 40s. They still have um, they still have a quite a bit of sexual vitality. They've still got desire. They're st- they're in the they're in the middle of their professional lives. Desiree is still, although you get the sense that she's had a, a great deal of success, and she's also starting to wonder. Uh, I mean, you know, she's she's an actress in her 40s. Like, how much longer can I go on doing this? So there's questions about, I'm sure there's economic questions for her about security. And then this kind of deeper question of, did I have something beautiful in my youth that I threw away? How do I reclaim that thing? Or is that not, is that not the right answer? Is, is Egerman still the man I believed him to be? Um, they're doing this kind of interesting flirtatious dance once we had something, but 
is that thing that we had real or is it a function? Or, I mean, I, the, the song, the chorus sings, right? Uh, remember, remember, yes. and, they, and they sketch all of these kind of memories that at one level, you know, maybe these are Egremont and Desiree's memories, but they're really not, right? I think remember is really about the instability of memory. Um, yes. the, stuff, the stuff that we think we remember fondly from former lovers was maybe never there to begin with. Uh, and that yeah. becomes the sort of the self-delusion, the foolishness, we might say of the middle-aged characters. Um, they're oh. trying to reclaim something, but that thing is, it's- It's gone. It's gone. Remember. The old deserted beach that we walked, remember. Remember. The cafe in the park where we talked, remember. Remember. The tenor on the boat that we saw had belching the bottom ride. Oh, how we laughed. Oh, how we cried. Oh, how you promised and oh, how I lied. That dilapidated inn. Remember, darling. The proprietor's grin also her glare. Yellow gingham on the bed. Remember, darling. And the canopy in red needing repair. Remember the lady with the large tambourine. Remember, remember the one who played the harp in her bow. I thought she was so adept. Oh, how we laughed! Oh, how we wept! Oh, how you poked! And oh, how we slept! How we kissed and how we clung. Remember, darling. We were foolish, we were young, more than we knew. Was it blue? The funny little games that we played. Remember. Remember. The unexpected knock of the maid. Remember. Remember. The wine that made us both rather merry and oh so very brave. Oh, how we laughed. Oh, how we drank. You acquiesced. And the rest is a blank. What we did with your perfume. Remember. I was limping for a week, you caught the flu. I'm sure it was you. One of the great lines of Sondheim, in my yep. humble opinion. Yeah, it's um, a... That we quote quite a bit around this house from time to time. <laughs> you, you and your, you your middle-aged <laughs> spouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how we laughed. Oh, how we drank. Oh, man. Yeah. The glory yeah. days, right? They're kind of looking back on their glory days, looking at the days ahead and wondering, I mean, what a, what a, I don't know, what a beautiful, what a pregnant question. Is the best of my life behind me? Um, yeah. And then you've got Madame Armfeld at the end of that kind of, right? Like who, who, who is only looking back really um, knows too much is a kind of almost mythological character. Um, yes. Yeah, it, what, what an interesting, what an interesting life cycle show, right? Uh, and in so, in so many ways, the work that you and I do, I think that's kind of how you, you know, like we clergy work with a life cycle. We're, we're interested in people's lives from baptism to funeral. Um, and in many ways, if there's a liturgical arc to this show, it's something like that. Uh, how do we age and how do we think about aging? 
Uh, how do we think about life experience? What meaning do you make out of a life that is in the middle of something? Uh, what is, and in some ways, what is Sondheim, right? The Follies is about this, companies about this. Like, should you look back? The warning and all of this stuff is like, don't look back. That's a dangerous, that's a dangerous game. But these are also characters that don't quite know how to move forward. They're stuck. Right, um, right. When, when Frederick sings to Desiree about his wife, Anne, one of the great songs, I think, from Little Night Music is, you must meet my wife. Talk about foolishness, like talking to your former and soon to be present lover right. um, about your other partner. Some of the some of Sondheim, I think, most cleverest rhymes and quick repartee in the back and forth between uh, between Frederick and Desiree uh, as he seeks to describe Anne. She flutters, you know, uh, et cetera, and, and as it gets increasingly cutting. Mm -hmm. uh, so to the end, it's, uh, you must meet my wife. She sings, yes, I'll bring my hat and my, and my knife. knife. <laughs> I'm just longing to meet her sometime. She sparkles. How pleasant. She twinkles. How nice. Her youth is a sort of present. Whatever the price. The incandescent what the Light. of my life. You must meet my wife. Yes, I must. I really must. No. She flutters. How charming. She twitters. My word. She floats. Isn't that alarming? What is she? A bird? She makes me feel I'm what? A very old man. Yes, no. No. But. I must meet your Gertrude. My Anne. Sorry, Anne. She loves my voice, my walk, my mustache, the cigar, in fact, that I'm smoking. She'll watch me puff until it's just ash, then she'll save the cigar butt. Bizarre, but you're joking. She dotes on your dimple. My snoring. How dear. The point is she's really simple. Yes, that much seems clear. She gives me funny names. Like all dry as dust. Wouldn't she just? You must meet my wife. If I must. Yes, I must. A sea of whims that I submerge in, yet so lovable in repentance. Unfortunately still a virgin, but you can't force a flower. Don't finish that sentence, she's monstrous. She's frightened. Unfeeling. Unversed, she'd strike you as unenlightened. No, I'd strike her first. Her reticence, her apprehension. Her crust. No, yes, no. Frederick. You must meet my wife. Let me get my hat and my knife. What was that? Yes, you must. So that sense of foolishness or in, in the middle years of yeah. not knowing how to navigate this. I'm still in love with Desiree and I'm married to Anne and I want to be faithful to Anne. But I love Desiree. Yeah. Well, I, oh, the, I mean, yeah. what a fool. I mean, he's married an 18-year-old, right? Like, I mean, so so what is that about, right? And so, I, I mean, at one level, like, Anne, Anne and Frederick's relationship 
Ooh, it's I mean, I, I you know, it's a it, bit creepy. It's a bit creepy in the context of the of the show and in the context of the period. Right. That's not unusual for an 18 year old girl to marry a 48 year old. I mean, in his opening number right now, other sweet inabilities, da, 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 da. you know, he, he basically he's thinking like a lawyer. It's actually I mean, it's, it's a great you know, he I, a, I could do this. B, I could do this. He's all you know thinking in terms of, of of legal propositions. But the question is, like, A, I could ravage her. B, I could nap. So I, I don't, I mean, there is a, there's an element of very, you know, like he's a very sophisticated character sexually. She's an innocent. She's barely, I mean, we would say barely legal. What are you doing in this really? He's 48. So, you know, what is that? Trying to reclaim something of his youth? What is he, you know, I think in the script, it's clear he's known Anne since she was a child. This is kind of a Gigi thing. Yeah. Um, you know, he's yeah. in love with her innocence. He's in love with her youth. He's in love with her impressionability. Oh, all of that makes me very uncomfortable. But, yeah. you know, and there you go. It's a reality of older men yep. um, falling in love with, having an infatuation right. with what a is, younger yeah. person. What is that what about? What is all that about? Right. I think it's about, right? Like, it's about masculinity. It's about reclaiming. I can still do this thing. I'm still, and he even says, right, in the song, right? Like, uh, that might be affected. My body's all right, but not in perspective and not in the light. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, they, like, what a, <laughs> that's the line more and more that resonates with me. <laughs> like, I used to, I used to be a pretty hot little number, and I think maybe I still am, but only under the right circumstances, and I want to be careful <laughs> about how I present myself. Now, as the sweet imbecilities tumble so lavishly onto her lap. Oh, Frederick, what a day it's been, an ending drama. While Pedro's now, there are two possibilities. A, I could ravish her. B, I could nap. That grumpy old Miss Nordstrom from next door. Her sister's coming for a visit. Say, it's the ravishment. Then we see the option that follows, of course. I do hope I'm imperious enough for the servants. I try to be, but half the time I think a, we'll the deployment of charm. Or B, the adoption of physical force. And the value jabbering on now for hours. But if I assume my trip on my trouser, they cross the I can't tell you how boring it was. I her hair getting tangled, her stays getting snapped. My nerves would be jangled, my energy sapped. You should have seen Mrs. Erling in the fish Removing mongers. Removing her clothing would take me all day, and her subsequent clothing would turn me away. Which eliminates B, and which leaves us with A. Could you ever be jealous of me? Could you? Like the more of Venice. Now, insofar as approaching it, what would be festive but have its effect? Shall I learn Italian? I think it'd be amusing if the verbs aren't too irregular. Now, there are two ways of broaching it. A, the suggestive, and B, the direct. But then French is a much cheaper language. Everyone says so. Say that I settle on B to wit a charmingly lecherous mood. I know you like my hair this way, but on top of my head, like a siren. Hey, <laughs> I could put on my nightshirt or sit disarmingly B in the nude. Oh, Frederick, you should have that seen the great arrival. My body's all right, but not in perspective and not in the light. Poor Henrik, how comical I'm bound to be chilly and feel a buffoon, but nightshirts are silly in mid-afternoon. Virtuous people so stiff. Which leaves the suggestive, but how to proceed? Although she gets restive, perhaps I could read. He gave the coachman the title. In view of her penchant for something romantic, dishonest, trenchant, and dickens too frantic, and stand all but ruin the plan of attack, as there isn't much blue in the red and the black. The Mopassons' candor would cause her dismay. The Brontes are grander, but not very gay. Her taste is much blander, I'm sorry to say. But as Hans Christian Anderson ever escaped, which eliminates And he said, You're such a pretty lady. Wasn't that? Now, sweet? with 
my mental facilities partially muddied and ready to snap. I'm sure about the bracelet, but earrings, earrings, oh, which earrings? Now, though there are possibilities still to be studied, I might as well nap. Mother's rubies. Oh, the diamonds are agony. Bow, though I must adjust my original plan. Desiree Armfeld, I just know she'll wear the most glamorous gowns. How shall I sleep half as deep as I usually can? Dear distinguished old Frederick. Yeah, what an interesting depiction of a middle-aged guy in relationship, not you know, in love. He I, and that's his that's his line at the end, right? Now I, I I heard this wrong for years. What he sings is, I still an he's talking to his wife, I still want and or love you. I heard for a year, I did not hear the and or. I always thought the line was and I still want and or love you, which I'd never made sense to me. But what he says, and this is such an interesting and line. And so, or. And or, yeah, which is yeah. hard to, It's that's hard to deliver as an actor. I never heard it right. But I was looking at the lyrics this afternoon and I realized, oh, that's what he says. I still want and or love you. He's not sure. He wants her, presumably for reasons that have as much to do with his own sense of self. Uh, he, he's, he's sexually attracted to her for all kinds of reasons. I don't need to go into that. And also there's a sense of yes and or, mm, I... I also love you, but how do I love you? Is it is it a kind of father daughter thing? Do I feel affection towards you? Uh, what what is the nature of their relationship? And he's he's a little unsure about that. And then of course Desiree comes back into his life, and it becomes clear to the audience and to Desiree that this is really who he probably should have been with from the beginning. Certainly should be with now. They're two fools in middle age. They're asking a lot of the same questions. Uh, they belong together. They go off together. In the end, they do finally end up together. Um, but yeah, yeah so the, whole, a... the whole intersection of time. And I mean, I've often said that relationships, a, a huge element of a relationship of two people getting together is that timing is right for both of them. Yeah. And that's such an ineffable thing because we can only see a bit in front of our noses, right? We have retrospect, you know, hind, there's a reason why we say hindsight is twenty twenty because we know what happened. Yeah. What's going to happen in the future? Who knows? That's kind of what we make, what we create. And for romantic love to happen, it seems to me, above everything else, the timing has to be right for each of the partners to make that commitment. Yeah. And, and the, the folly in it is sometimes the timing is right when the commitment is made, but seven years later, the timing is different. Yeah. So this, the whole interplay of time mm -hmm. and love and sex is really, I think, uh, the, the, the matrix around which 
the dynamics of a little night music is wound. Yeah, and that becomes really what Send of the Clowns is about, right? It's a, it's a question of timing. Me here at last on the ground, you in midair, and then she just yeah. throw it right, so I'll send in the clowns, right? As if to say like, yeah. all of this is a farce. This is ridiculous. We are fools. We're in our forties. We're trying to pretend that we're young lovers in the, you know, like, no, this is ridiculous. Our timing has always been off. I mean, there's actually, there's something there's something kind of admirable and very resilient to me about Desiree in that moment, right? Uh, if, yeah. if, if Send in the Clowns is not uh, a tactic that she's using, or not just a tactic that she's using to buttress against a broken heart, but is also a piece of perhaps hard-won wisdom by a woman yeah. who has seen a lot of the world, right? At, a, at, a, at one level, what we could hear her saying is, look, none of this really matters all that much. Um, right. <laughs> no feeling is final. Uh, th- th- this, mm. this, this too will pass, right? Yeah. We are, uh, I, I am brokenhearted. I'm, I'm, you know, she, she has just made a bid for, for the guy that she loves. He's rejected her, but rather than wallow in self-pity, she, oh, well, send in the clown, right? What a, ta-da, yeah. right? What a funny little, what a funny little bit of sex comedy. Yeah. I, I thought that you'd want what I want. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. My dear. Yep. Missed, uh, missed signals again. And yeah. with, with a deep, I mean, we call it a sense of wistfulness. I think that's right. There's also a deep sense of affection in that song, mm-hmm. right? He's rejected mm-hmm. her. She still loves him. She still, fe- you know, it's like they're, they're comrades. So even right. Yeah. Like, of course, you know, the, the, the next turn of the show will be, they actually do end up together, but in some ways it's more interesting to me if they don't. Um, yeah. And she almost as though she's not really saying goodbye, but, uh, she, what she's saying is, Alfie the same, au revoir, until we meet again. Um, yeah. I, I care deeply for you. I always will. Our timing has always been crappy, maybe always will be. None of it, you know, like, okay, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You know, that's the way, that's the way life is. Isn't life bizarre? Don't you love us? My fault, I feel. You'd want what I want, sorry, my dear. But where are the clowns? Quick send in the clowns. Don't bother. rescue when one has no intention of being saved. Do try to forgive me. Isn't it rich? Isn't it
aren't weddings just thinking back to the the marriage in uh uh the getting married today song in company which we talked about a couple shows back isn't isn't a wedding kind of a prehistoric ritual as she sings but uh the, the time when the clowns get sent in like it's the party um, oh how interesting yeah yeah yeah. you know i just it just it occurs to me the whole all the things that surround weddings yeah. uh, the parties the laughter the celebration of course the grief i mean uh i've seen and i've been a family member who's uh surprisingly found myself in tears at weddings because something has died and something new is beginning it's there's something very profound about a wedding but there's also something really foolish about a wedding about it it's sort of a clown time uh, yeah. the, the the uncle who sits in the corner and gets drunk i mean just classically uh yeah that one day i will be that person you know yeah well and that's um, i mean send in the clowns right send in the clowns at the end of the song that's her great right like don't bother they're here, they're here. which i think yeah. we're meant to read is like oh right every character in this thing is a clown like you know it's us we're clowns we have no idea what we're doing we're you know fuddling our way through life someday we'll end up in the wheelchair as madame armfeld is looking back on all of this with a laugh I mean, that's Lia. that's what i love about liaisons right like what a great uh, you know, a woman who's you know, there again, right? Is, is there any stability or accuracy to these memories? Probably not. Doesn't really matter. She's reliving her glory days as a courtesan, you know, and actually it's some of the, some of the best writing. I think that sometimes, you know, I acquired a, uh, I don't know, I'm not gonna be able to quote the lines. They're, they're great. And Hermione Gingle does them, does them beautifully. She was well, not, they did not want her. about Hermione role. Gingle. Well, yeah. so this, this is a story that I love because it's so quintessentially Hermione Gingle that, you know, Sondheim thought she was completely wrong for the role. She was convinced that she should play the role. She lobbied a little bit. They agreed, you know, okay, she can come into audition. They were pretty convinced, like, well, you know, whatever. We'll just sit through this and then thank her so much. She comes in. She hadn't prepared a song. So she's like, well, I could sing, you know, I could sing something a cappella for you. So she did some music hall thing. And they were like, okay, well, she can sing all right. But uh, you know, still, Sondheim is pretty convinced, like, there's no way this woman is going to be remotely believable as a former courtesan. She's just too, Sondheim says, you know, basically Hermione Gingold only can play Hermione Gingold in its pure camp. <laughs> but then she, as she's preparing to leave, she turns to them and she says, gentlemen, I, I see in your script that this character is 74 years old. I am 74 years old. I also see, I also see, gentlemen, in your script that it, when at the end of the play, when this character dies, the stage direction is that her wig should slip a little bit. Well, gentlemen, and she proceeds to whip off her wig to reveal <laughs> that she is completely bald. <laughs> and, she, and then I think, like, probably, I imagine, like, throws her wig down and walks off stage. And Sondheim says, Three jaws hit the floor. And the next day we signed her. Like, she was Madame Armfelt, right? Like, she had the capacity to you know, to deliver the coup de grace at the end of the thing, as if to say, right, this is, this whole thing is a farce. I mean, she got, she got it. She got yes. what the show was about. She ripped off her wig. She showed that she was a completely bald 74 year old actress who didn't fucking care. Um, <laughs> and then they, you know, they gave her what I think is one of Sondheim's greatest, greatest num numbers that the, that the villa of the Duke of this, you know, I did all this stuff and liaisons, what's happened to them, liaisons, what's become of them. You know, she's, she's regretting what once was a sumptuous banquet is now figs. No, not even figs, raisins. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the best. I, I think Madame Armfeld is my favorite part of, of A Little Night. Music. And that's what Elaine Stritch played. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. And it's too bad. I haven't found a recording of Elaine Stritch singing. No, I would love, I've seen, I've seen the recording of Angela Lansbury do, but I haven't seen, haven't seen Stritch do it. It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's up there with I'm Still Here in terms yes. of a, uh, an aging woman's song of resilience. Um, it's a, it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a tour de force. I, I, I like that song a lot. At the villa of the Baron de Signac, where I spent a somewhat infamous year. At the villa of the Baron de Signac, I had ladies in attendance, fire over pendants, liaisons. What's happened to them? Liaisons today. Disgraceful. What's become of them? Some of them hardly pay their shoddy way. What once was a rare champagne is now just an amiable hawk. What once was a villa at least is digs. What once was a gown with train is now just a simple little frock. What once was a sumptuous feast is figs. No, not even figs. Raisins. Now, where was I? Where was I? Oh, yes. At the palace of the Duke of Ferrara, who's prematurely deaf but a dear. At the palace of the Duke of Ferrara, I acquired some position plus a tiny titian. Liaisons, what's happened to them? Liaisons today. To see them, indiscriminate women, it pains me more than I can say. The lack of taste that they display. Where is style? Where is skill? Where is forethought? Where's discretion of the heart? Where's passion in the art? Where's craft? With a smile and a will, but with more thought. I acquired a chateau extravagantly overstuffed. Too many people muddle sex with mere desire And when emotion intervenes, the nets descend It should on no account perplex or worse inspire It's but a pleasurable means to a measurable end Why does no one comprehend? Let us hope this lunacy is just a trend. Where was I? Where was I? Oh, yes. So what do you make of the Miller's son? Because it's, to me, always the song that doesn't quite fit. I, I love the song. I love the moment in the show. But, you know, kind of back to Sesame Street, which one of these things is not like the other? Yeah. Uh, Miller's song almost feels to me, maybe I'm being too harsh on it, like it's from another show 
imported imported in. It always packs a wallop for me in the show when yep. she steps forward and sings this thing, and you got to rejoice that the the maid gets a gets a great song, and you know, thinking of you know in John's Gospel, uh, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, the servants who drew the the, the servants know what's going on. It's kind of like she's amongst the wisest and most articulate yeah. of uh, her uh, of of any of the characters in the play. Yeah, it's I mean, in some ways, I think so structurally, right? It happens right after Send in the Clowns. So I mean, Send in the Clowns functions like the eleven o'clock number, right? Like it's sort of the it's the tour de force for the main actress. Although yeah. I wanna I wanna mount a case that the Miller son is the true eleven o'clock number of yeah. of a little night music, right? It's it's the song that encapsulates, I think, what's trying to be said in this piece. Now, as you say, right, that's that's tricky because it's a character who we haven't really heard anything from up until this moment. She's been watching everything. It is, I mean, part of the reason why I think actors love to do The Miller's Son is that it's about the most clear-eyed, um, honest depiction of marriage and sex outside of marriage that you get in the Broadway musical tradition, right? She knows, Petra knows, um, she's going to marry the Miller's son. He's a nice boy. He will provide security for her. In the meanwhile, and that's that's the refrain of the song. There are the mouths to world. there are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed, and there's many a tryst and there's many a bed. And a girl has to celebrate what passes by. That's the line that inspired the song. Sondheim talks about. Uh, I think it's a story that he overheard from a friend of his, a, a little girl who was um, whose birthday was on Christmas Day. She was six or seven, and somebody, an adult, asked her, "Like, what are you going to celebrate? Your birthday or Christmas?" And she said, "Well, both of them. You have to celebrate what passes by out of a you know a six year old mouth." That was the. I, I mean, so if there is um, Sondheim, I think heard that as wisdom. There is there is yeah. you know from from the mouths of babes, right? There is the wisdom of what it means to be a woman. We might say, but maybe not just. Um, so he wrote a whole song for a young woman who is the servant of a very wealthy group of people, all of whom, many of whom are, you know, like they're all married, they're all having an affair, um, they're all sneaking around in this very surreptitious way. And Petra is very frank, right? I don't want to have to right. sneak around. I am going to have sex with whoever I want to, and eventually I'll get married. But in the meanwhile, um, I'm going to have is I'm going to celebrate what's passing by because the day will come when I can no longer do this. So right. I'm not going to I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to pretend um, Petra's Petra's if there's a queer character in this uh, thing. Uh, OK, yeah. I think it's Petra. She's the one who's willing to say, I mean, in some ways, it's a response to send in the clowns. You guys are, you're, I feel like Petra's saying to them, y'all, I mean, that clownishness is a function of class. It's a function of privilege. It's a function of wealth. Uh, it's a function of the, you know, like the, the roles that you all play in society. And that role, that world is bankrupt and I want no part of it. There is great freedom in being a working class girl who, you know, has a sense of where her life is taking her. And in the meantime, she's going to celebrate her body, her sexuality, her, I don't know. There's, there's a, there's a, uh, a joy in that song. There's an yeah. embrace of life in that song. There's an honesty and a clear eyed, I don't know. She's, she's another, you know, she, she's, she's no fool. She's not middle-aged, right. kind of like Madame Armfeld. She knows too much. And in the meantime, she's going to, I don't know. I, that, that, there's, a, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, that, that song, I think, belongs in the triptych of Frederica, Desiree, Madame Armfeld. And then there's Petra, who you know, almost functions as another Greek chorus, watching everything that's happening, commenting on it. You know, it's, it's kind of the last thing we hear before the kind of final you know, wrap-up of all of these things. 
If there's one character in the show who is not self-deluded in a show that's all about self-delusion, it's Petra. She's yeah. She knows what's going on. I shall marry the miller's son Pin my hat on a nice piece of property Friday nights for a bit of fun We'll go dancing Meanwhile It's a wink and a wiggle and a giggle on the grass And I'll trip the light fandango A pinch and a diddle in the middle of what passes by It's a very short road from the pinch and the punch To the punch and the pouch and the pension It's a very short road to the ten thousand and the belch and the grouch and the sigh In the meanwhile There are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed And a lot in between in the meanwhile And a girl ought to celebrate what passes by Or I shall marry the businessman Five fat babies And lots of security Friday nights if we think we can We'll go dancing It's a push and a fumble and a tumble in the sheets and I'll put the highland fancy A dip in the butter and a flutter with what meets my eye It's a very short fetch from the push and the hoop To the squint and the stoop and the mumble It's not much of a stretch to the cribs and the croup And the bosoms that droop and go dry In the meanwhile There are mouths to be kissed before mouths and there's many a tryst and there's many a bed To be sampled and seen in the meanwhile And a girl has to celebrate what passes by Or I shall marry the Prince of Wales Pearls and servants and dressing for festivals Friday nights with him all in tales We'll have dancing Meanwhile It's a rip in the bustle and a rustle in the hay And I'll pitch the quick fantastic With flings of confetti and my petticoats away up it's a very short way from the fling that's for fun To the thigh pressing under the table It's a very short day till you're stuck with just one Or it has to be done on the sly In the meanwhile There are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed And there's many a tryst and there's many a bed There's a lot I'll have missed but I'll not have been dead when I die 
And she's figured out something about <clears throat> this intersection between love, sex, and time. Yeah. Um, yep. And the, the problem, I think, with the intersection that most of the other characters face, but she faces most honestly, is the, the conjunction doesn't always happen in the best way for all concerned. You yeah. know, uh, uh, sex will often come before love or love before sex or sex at the wrong time in terms of love or love at the wrong time in terms of sex. And I think we've, uh, we've all lived that in one way or another in our lives. It was, you know, for example, and breaking up a, when I broke up with uh, my, my first long-term partner and we uh, acr very acrimonious breakup. And we found ourselves continuing to enjoy the intimacy of our sexual relationship after we'd broken up. Yeah. And this as a, like a 28 year old, I was profoundly confused yeah. and went to my therapist as all good Christians do. Uh, my Jewish <laughs> therapist. Of is, course. That, is that what Christians do? I wish, <laughs> I wish more would. And he said, Oh yeah, Peter, it's well known that in a relationship, often the last thing to end is the sexual relationship. Yeah. And I said, well, why didn't anybody ever tell me that? That <laughs> this <clears throat> conjunction of time and sex and love yeah. don't always move into this kind of double helix, beautiful combination. Yeah. It's it, it can be random, it can be confusing, and I think people feel foolish in the midst of it. I certainly did. The characters in Little Night Music certainly did. Yep. All the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that cry, why didn't anybody tell me? I mean, in some ways, like that's what this show is about. Nobody yeah. tells you this stuff. You have to figure it out. Maybe you've got a Madame Armfeld in your life who can, you know, I, I, and this, I mean, maybe, maybe like there, something about the generational arc, right? We need therapists. We need mentors. This is why I think, you know, the, the, the promise of the church is it's one of the only places in our world anymore where multi-generational relationships can be possible. Um, mostly that doesn't happen from, you know, we, we, we tend to interact with people who are mostly kind of asking the same questions we are. The promise of a multi-generational community and the theater is another, I mean, can be, is you've got somebody when, you know, as you, as you did with your therapist, right? Like, I can't understand what's going on. Somebody who can laugh it off, send in the clowns, Peter, everybody knows clowns. this. Yeah. Like you don't, don't take this so seriously. A girl has to celebrate what passes by, live your life. Yeah. Um, this is not something that you need to you need to spend a lot of time in existential crisis about. This is actually how it works because nobody teaches you this stuff. You have nobody to learn it. You. Yeah. It just felt, you know, isn't this rich? Isn't it queer? Uh, <laughs> what an interesting word for her to use. Right. Yeah. Losing mm -hmm. my timing this late in my career. And, and that whole, then we're back to the whole sense of timing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, within the theological world, we, we often talk about the chronos, versus Kairos, the Kronos, the chronological time, the day after day, life being just one damn thing after another. And then every now and then intersected with a Kairos moment where mm -hmm. it is suddenly filled with meaning and your life expands, your energies and perceptions expand. Yeah. And I think 
the 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 tropes of romantic love that get presented to us in popular film and cinema and so forth say that uh, the timing of falling in love always kind of opens up this Kairos moment. But then what happens when that time, when the time of that relationship has ended, or if the Kairos moment maybe was a bit of an illusion yeah. and you end up like, uh, uh, like Frederick and Anne realizing, oh my God, this was a terrible mistake. Uh, we may have brought each other some companionship and pleasure, but we both need to move on. And they do. And they do. Um, well, and moves on to his son. So there's a slight little bit of uh, incestuous uh, something going on there. But I, I, the way the show is presented, like that was always inevitable. That's what's kind of what was. Yeah. She, she needs to be with somebody her own age. He needs a girl yeah. to awaken him from his gloominess. So, OK, that's a little weird. and It's a little creepy, but it's a sex comedy. So whatever. We'd look the other way. And are all seminarians gloomy, do you think? Uh, <laughs> it's not gloomy, it's profound. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. I, I mean, I think uh, teaching in a theological school right now and uh, remembering decades and decades ago when I was a student, it's hard, I think, for folks who are studying theology to also engage in the dance of life because everything gets a little... Sometimes with the with, with the the ecclesiastical theological worldview, everything just gets a little too profound, mm. and that's again where we need to, I guess, send in the clowns. Send in the sometime. clowns. I think that's the yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah. So where where is God in this material? It's probably it's Desiree's hard run hard won wisdom. Don't don't take everything so serious, and that's what Frederick learns at the end too, right? Like. Yeah. He's attracted to Aunt, to his his father's new wife. Uh, he's in his head about it, not surprisingly. I know a lot of that is the moral quandary, right? Like I cannot, I cannot possibly be attracted to this person. That is immoral. And she breaks through that. I mean, he, you know, he loses, we might say, his uh, religious rigidity in favor of what I think is, at least in the context of the show, is being given to us as, you know, if there's a true religion at the heart of this thing, it's. Um, it's Petra and it's Desiree. A girl has to celebrate what passes by. You won't have this for very long. Enjoy it while you can, because it's going to change. So live in the moment. I mean, that, that, how, many, <laughs> how many funeral sermons have you preached that are some kind of variation yeah. on and that tell theme? the ones that you love, you love them now, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that is something I think about the kingdom of God. I mean, I, uh, when Jesus says, you know, the, uh, it, it's here, it's now, yeah. it's in the moment. I think that's... Uh, that's what Little Night Music kind of gets to is that moment to cherish uh, and, and to see as holy, as sacred, yeah. but not humorless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, there's, there's always a little bit of a wink, right? There's a little bit of a wink and a nod, um, which I mean, and maybe that's the wink and the nod of the theater, right? At the end of the day, mm. all of these are actors playing parts. And I think that's important, right? right? Like that's, that is also the, you know, that, that is maybe the show's, uh, final answer in terms of the seriousness of human relationships. We're all just actors playing parts. We're reading our lines. Uh, something does break through that, right? We have moments of connection and honesty. Um, but also, you know, it's a it's a big show that we're all in the middle of. So when things get real serious, send in the clowns. Send in the clowns. Our Sondheim series is going to carry on. So stay tuned. Check in again. Okay. Until next time. Soon. Bye-bye. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. 
See you next time. 